1: lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. These last few weeks, I've been continuing with a series of talks on the Satipatthana Sutta, particularly discussing different aspects of the fourth foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of the Dhamma. So Dhamma here means particularly categories of experience, it means the understanding of how different elements of the body and mind function. So the Buddha includes in this foundation of mindfulness, things like the five hindrances, how different factors function as hindrances, as the five aggregates, as the six sense spheres, as the seven factors of enlightenment, four noble truths. So all of this is included in the fourth foundation. So are in the middle now of examining what the Buddha called the five aggregates of clinging. And this is the basic analysis of our subjective experience. It's the analysis of everything we call self or we call I. It's through the careful contemplation or mindfulness investigation of these five aggregates that we're able to experientially deconstruct this sense of self, which is the fundamental cause of suffering and discontent in our lives. So of the five aggregates, we've already discussed rupa, which is the physical elements, vedna, which is the feeling tone of pleasantness, unpleasantness, neutrality, and sanya, or perception. Tonight I'd like to continue with the discussion of perception, because there are some other aspects to explore, and also talk about the fourth aggregate, which is that of mental formations. So just to review briefly, perception is that quality of mind, it's that factor that recognizes the distinguishing characteristics, the distinguishing marks of an object. So it recognizes, for example, something as being red or blue or yellow, black, or man or woman. Perception is what recognizes the distinguishing marks, names it, and then stores it in memory for some future reference. We talked about the importance of balancing perception with mindfulness so that we frame, we use the frame of our recognition, we use the frame of our perception in order to look at the experience, to feel the experience, to enter into it more deeply and not to simply be looking at the frame. Now, it's interesting to note that perception is a common factor, which means this moment of recognition is happening in every moment of consciousness. Mindfulness is not a common factor. Mindfulness is sometimes there and sometimes not there. And so it needs to be cultivated. We need to strengthen the mindfulness so that it's operating as a strong force in our minds, as a strong balance to the factor of perception. When there's perception or this superficial recognition without mindfulness, which is largely our way of being in the world, that is perception without mindfulness, we are recognizing just the surface appearance of things. We haven't entered into the experience deeply. And so, for the most part, are not seeing its impermanent or its insubstantial nature. There are many areas of our lives where we can see the tendency to solidify our view of the world, solidify our view of ourselves through superficial perceptions and concepts. And sometimes, this has very harmful or dangerous consequences. So just a few examples of how we do this. And these, These concepts are the conventional way of viewing things. They're not, they're not unusual. When we look about in the world, we see how often we get lost in concepts of place. We create concepts of place and then take them to be real. And just think of how many wars have been fought over boundaries. How many people have been killed fighting over a boundary? And what is that? It's not that it has any substantial reality. It's a construct of people's minds. One of the things most commented on by the astronauts who were in space was the almost mystical experience of looking down on the earth and perhaps for the first time seeing it as a whole, seeing it as a unity. From space, there are no boundaries. You know, and we possibly can have that understanding of the unity, the non-separation. We create concepts of ownership or possessiveness. We have the idea that we own different things. Sometimes this is on a global scale. You know, the idea that one country can own another country. We see the legacy of this notion, this concept, the legacy of colonialism in so many fractured societies in the world today. Where did all that come from? It came from belief or attachment to this concept. Sometimes we see it on a very local scale. Attachment to ownership or possessiveness. As local a scale as your sitting place in the hall. know, how would you feel if you came into the hall and you saw somebody sitting in your place? There would probably be a moment, you know, where the mind or heart contracted or became aversive or judgmental because already we've we've claimed the sense of ownership The Buddha said that we can't Even be said to own our minds or bodies We can't even truly be said to possess this mind and body to own it. It's not subject to our will much less anything else. Concepts of place, concepts of ownership, concepts of time. This is a hugely powerful construct that imprisons us to a large extent in our lives. We have created the notions of past and future. So how do we do this? Perception, this factor of perception recognizes certain kinds of thoughts. You know, we have certain thoughts of memories, of recollections, of remembrances. And so perception recognizes this, creates a concept past, And then there's a little mental gymnastic that goes on and it's as if we toss this concept back behind us as if the past is a reality back there someplace. We do the same thing with future. Perception recognizes certain kinds of thoughts of imagining, planning, anticipating, creates a concept, future. And then in the same way, it's as if we toss this concept out ahead of us as if the future is a reality out there waiting for us. And in both cases, we are not seeing that it is simply a thought in the present moment. How do you experience past? How do you experience future? other than as a thought in the moment. And yet when we get caught, when we get lost, in these mind-created worlds of past and future, it's as if we're carrying this huge burden. It's like carrying two mountains on our shoulders. How much of the time have we spent here, you know, in meditation, lost in past and lost in future? very seductive, this concept has become so strongly conditioned in us that we're not seeing them for what they are, which is just a thought in the moment. A thought in the moment is very light, comes and goes. Being lost in the concept is a huge burden. And these concepts of time also very much condition how we experience the moment. Just as a common example on retreat, pay attention to time thoughts about the retreat. You know, maybe you're having a difficult day, you know, and maybe the body hurts, or the mind is restless or bored. And the mind starts thinking, oh my God, another two weeks, another three weeks, however long you're staying, I'll never make it. And so the mind is creating the thought of the future, not seeing that it's just a momentary thought, and being burdened by the feeling tone of that construct Or the other way, you know, you might be having a really good day and I wish I could just stay here for the rest of the year. So that, that conditions how we feel. And in both cases, what's happening? It's just a thought in the moment. Now we can get even more subtle when we realize that we don't only create thoughts of past and future, that we also create concepts of the present moment. And then we become attached to that. As a Portuguese poet, Fernando Pessoa, he wrote at the beginning of the 20th century, there's one poem which he calls, Live, You Say, in the Present. These are just the first few lines of the poem. Live, you say, in the present, live only in the present. But I don't want the present, I want reality. I want existent things, not the time which measures them. You know, when, when I read that, it was such a good antidote to the message we get, even in spiritual practice, live in the present, be in the present. I don't want the present, I want reality. Because the present itself is a concept. And the Buddha said this very directly in the Dhammapada. And the the teaching here is so powerful. I think if we could really hear it and get it, just these few lines could enlighten us. He said, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present and cross over to the further shore. With a mind wholly liberated, you go beyond birth and death. Now, I think most of us have a sense of what it means and have actually done it, letting go of the past. You know, sometimes at least we see that it's just a thought and let go of it. We see that the future is just a thought and let go of it. But what does it mean to let go of the present? You know, can you settle back into that mind that releases even that clinging, that attachment to the moment, relaxing back into openness? There's concepts of place, concepts of ownership or possessiveness, concepts of time, all created by perception, not balanced by mindfulness. We create concepts of self image, you know, our role in the world, how we present ourselves to ourselves, to others. As soon as we identify, with any self-image, with any role at all, it's already a limitation, a contraction. Now, sometimes on retreat, we create spiritual self-images, the good yogi, bad yogi syndrome. You know, We're having what seems to be a good, pleasant sitting. Oh, such a good yogi, it's really going well. Then you have a difficult, oh, I'm such a bad yogi. it seems like I'm not getting any place. And we go back and forth and not only do we get lost in these practice assessment tapes about ourselves, we have all kinds of practice assessment tapes about our fellow yogis you know, and all of these projections and then compare ourselves to other yogis. When we're, when we're not caught up in concepts of self-image, then it's possible to relax back into a much more open-hearted, spontaneous unfolding. Just as an example of that possibility, I want to read you something. This was an article from, it was in Tricycle Magazine, and I'm um, This is edited, I edited it a bit. Has to do with self-images and being free of self-images. So my friend Sid once placed a Groucho Groucho Marx mask in a hotel room where the Dalai Lama would be staying during a visit to an Ivy League university. It was a gesture of karmic abandon, because really, who could gauge the terrestrial and spiritual consequences of such an act? And it was also a gesture of friendliness, <clears throat> because His Holiness had once told Sid, one of the main organizers of the visit, that always having to be the Dalai Lama didn't give him much freedom, so much politics, so much responsibility. Being a compassionate fellow, Sid wanted to help. A disguise, humorous and absurd, would be just the thing. So imagine this a cascade of university bureaucrats arrayed in the Dalai Lama's suite, waiting for their guest to appear. They sit erect in armchairs, which are designed for slouching. They're keyed up by the barricade of media flax surrounding the hotel, the barricade of FBI men surrounding the suite. And they, like all humans, harbor the deep longing to be knocked out by an influx of spirit and greatness. Minutes pass and then a door flings open. Unaccountably, Groucho (laughs) Marx, wearing long maroon robes and serious lace-up shoes, (laughs) emerges, chuckling loudly laughing so hard that tears come to his bespectacled eyes. And then everyone started to laugh at the wonderful absurdity of the situation, laughed with a joy and incaution uncharacteristic of people in their position. The Dalai Lama didn't care about maintaining his image. He saw a chance for fun, for deflating others' expectations, and he took it. Even his holiness... Needs a little Groucho in his life. So <laughs> oh, it's a wonderful image of Groucho coming out in maroon robes. And... So we want to see how we get caught and can be free from from the imprisonment, you know, of self-image, self-concept. We also create concepts about things that may seem even more fundamental, like age or gender or race. When we look more deeply, we see that these are concepts too. How old is your breath? Does it make sense? Is the pain in your back male or female? What color is your mind? not to say that these concepts don't point to some differences of experience, but we often become so identified with and attached to the concept, concept of age or gender or race or culture, and so we just solidify this very fixed sense of identity of who we are. So our deepest conditioning and the source of so much suffering in our lives comes out of one most basic and misguided perception. That is, we create the concept of self, of I. We create the idea, the reference point of someone behind experience to whom all experience is happening. That reference point is a construct of our own minds. So why is it so strongly conditioned in us? We're attached to and identified so strongly with this belief in, this idea of self, the reference point of self because we are relying on, on, are satisfied with a very superficial perception of our experience. Now we recognize a pattern, we recognize a certain pattern of physical and mental elements. We recognize the pattern, and then we call that pattern Joseph or self or I not seeing that these concepts are only a designation for a certain arising appearance. Now, so just as another example, imagine we haven't had one lately, but just imagine the last big winter storm. You know, and there's just huge storm happening in Blizzard and we create this notion, we create this concept of storm or blizzard. But what is it really? Is there any storm or blizzard apart from the constituent elements of cold and wind and snow? And even each of those can be broken down further. When we look carefully at experience, we see that storm is just a designation for the appearance of a constellation of elements which are changing moment to moment. When we look carefully, we see that what we're calling self, what we're calling I, is similar to calling that constellation of natural elements storm, What we're calling I, what we're calling self, is just this constellation, certain elements of the body, elements of mind. There's a wonderful Polish poet. She won the Nobel Prize some number of years ago. And in one of her poems, she called View with a Grain of Sand. She really illuminates the limitation of the conventional world of perception. So again, I'll just read some of the lines from the poem. She wrote, We call it a grain of sand, but it calls itself neither grain nor sand. It does just fine without a name. Our glance, our touch mean nothing to it. It doesn't feel itself seen and touched. And that it fell on the windowsill is only our experience, not its. This next stanza is a wonderful analogy for an understanding of the nature of awareness. She writes, the window has a wonderful view of a lake, but the view doesn't view itself. It exists in this world colorless, shapeless, soundless, odorless, and painless. The lake's floor exists floorlessly, and its shore exists shorelessly. Its water feels itself neither wet nor dry. And all this beneath the sky by nature skyless, in which the sun sets without setting at all. A second passes, a second second, a third, but they are three seconds only to us. Time has passed like a messenger with urgent news. But that's just our simile. The character time is invented. His haste is make-believe. We live in the world of these concepts. And when we don't pay a deeper attention, a more careful attention, we give these concepts a reality which limit our experience of things, and imprison us in this world of perception. It imprisons us in the conventional understanding of self, of I. Okay, so this is the third of the aggregates, perception. The fourth aggregate in this mindfulness of Dhamma, the Pali word for it is Sankara. And in Buddhism, Sankara is a very important term. And like the word Dhamma or Dharma, in Sanskrit, it has a wide range of meanings. So, Sankara can refer to volitional activities connected with the sixth sense bases. Sankara can mean all conditioned things. And there's a famous verse which is chanted a lot in Buddhist countries where it says, Sabe Sankara Anicca, all conditioned things are impermanent. Sabe, Sankara, Dukkha, all conditioned things are unsatisfactory. And then it changes, Sabe, Dhamma, Anatta, all Dhammas, all things, and this includes Nibbana, are selfless. So it's just making an interesting distinction here between conditioned arisings, which are impermanent and unsatisfactory, And then all dharmas, including Nibbana, which are selfless. So in the context of the five aggregates, sankara has a particular meaning. And it refers to all of the mental factors which arise in different combinations in every moment of consciousness. In this particular aggregate, the fourth aggregate of Sankara, it does not include the mental factors of feelings and perceptions, which the Buddha had singled out, you know, as other aggregates because they're so particularly important. So it's all the mental factors other than feeling and perception. Now, what are mental factors? These qualities of mind that arise in different combinations in every moment of knowing. They are the building blocks of all our mental activity. These mental factors are the building blocks of thoughts and moods and emotions and mind states. In the Buddhist psychology, the Abhidhamma These factors are delineated into four different categories. And I'd like to give just a brief description of these four categories, because it becomes a very clear model for understanding the processes of our mind and also the karmic consequences of our mind's activity. So this is a, this is a mini crash course in Abhidhamma, about 10 minutes worth. Okay, this is the delineation of mental factors. The first category is called the universal factors, which means there are seven factors of mind which arise in every moment of consciousness. Many of these we've already discussed. It's factors like contact and feeling and perception and volition. Okay, these are factors that are arising every moment. The second category of mental factors are called occasionals. And these are six qualities of mind, six factors, which sometimes are there and sometimes are not there. And these include qualities like effort, rapture, initial application, sustained application. So these are the qualities that need to be developed because they're not always present. These two categories, the common factors and the occasional factors, are ethically neutral. What this means is that they occur in both wholesome and unwholesome states of mind. So this is interesting, that rapture can be in an unwholesome state or a wholesome state. Energy can be used skillfully or unskillfully. Concentration can be used skillfully and unskillfully. Okay, so there are the common factors, the occasional factors, and all of these are ethically neutral. The third category of mental factors are the 14 unwholesome states of mind, unwholesome factors. And these include delusion, shamelessness, restlessness, greed, wrong view, conceit, and it goes on. There are, there are 14 of these. Now, there's something interesting, I think, to note about this category of 14 unwholesome factors. Of these 14, there are four qualities, four factors... that arise in every unwholesome state. So whenever we're in an unwholesome state, these four will always be there. What are they? It's delusion, it's this shamelessness, fearlessness of wrongdoing, and restlessness. And when I read that but these four, of the, of the 14 unwholesome states, these four are always present, I realized that it would be very helpful to highlight these four in our awareness. Because if we can become very attuned to the arising of these four qualities in the mind, it helps us understand what fuels, what feeds, what leads us into the unwholesome action. Now sometimes when we're about to do something that we know is not quite wholesome, and maybe it's like taking the second helping of dessert when you're already completely full. You know, but there's just, you know, that that moment of greed and it's just wanting to take more. Or maybe it's before some moment of wrong speech. Right at that time when we know we're about to do something that's not quite wholesome, we know it's not quite right. We might look, we might examine the mind at that time in terms of these four mental factors, and see how they are conditioning the action, they're actually leading us into the action, if we can bring an engaged and interested interest to how these factors are working at that time, it often becomes a vehicle for our release from them. So for example, we might particularly notice just the quality of restlessness, restlessness of mind, which underlies so many unskillful actions. There's a restlessness, and we want to get out of it in some way. And so we do something which may be unskillful. We might notice a kind of rebelliousness in the mind. You know, I've noticed this when I'm about to do something that I know is not the most helpful thing in the world. And I know it, I can recognize it. And I can see this little little tone of rebelliousness in my mind. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. You know, what is that? That factor is really an expression of the shamelessness, you know, or fearlessness of wrongdoing. It's like this rebelliousness is just overriding those two factors. So by focusing on it, it actually becomes interesting to watch the dynamics of our mind, Or in moments of intent, you know, to do something that is unskillful, either a small unskillful thing or or a big one, we might really look and investigate how the power of delusion is operating at that moment. Of how we're delusion here, meaning we're not considering, we're not taking in the understanding of karma and that this action will bring about in some form or another some kind of suffering. So in all of this, it's not that we become aware and more highly attuned to these four unwholesome factors which are always present in an unwholesome action. We're not attuning ourselves to them In order to judge ourselves, you know, or in order to become critical, it's really attuning to them in order to free ourselves out of understanding the operation of the mind. All of these factors are impersonal. They are all selfless. They're just fulfilling their own function. Can we shed some light on that? So we understand what's moving us. A transforming point in my practice came. Okay, it took a while to get to this point. But when I was able to come to that place where I would rather see the defilements, the calaises, the unwholesome factors in my mind, I would much rather see them than not see them. A whole area of interest opened up. So instead of the pattern of self-judgment about what was happening, it aroused this tremendous interest and investigation. What is this about? How is it working? Am I caught in it or can I... Be mindful of it. So there's tremendous potential there. Okay, so there's the seven common factors and the six occasional ones, and these are the ones that are ethically neutral. There are 14 unwholesome mental factors, four of which are always present in an unskillful state. And the fourth and last category of these mental factors is comprised of what the Buddha called the 25 beautiful factors of mind. It's kind of interesting. I could not find the reason for this. This is an asymmetrical description where the Buddha talked of the unwholesome and the beautiful rather than the unwholesome and the wholesome. So it's just struck me, why why did he call them beautiful in this context rather than unwholesome or wholesome? I don't know the answer, and I did a little investigation, and nobody else that I asked knew the answer. But in some way, when we consider this category of the beautiful factors of mind, I think it inspires a certain delight in us, or it can inspire a certain delight, when we consider the heart and the mind made beautiful by the cultivation of these different factors. So of the 25 beautiful states, there are many that you're familiar with, just to name a few, the, the factor of faith of mindfulness, of non-greed, of generosity, of non-hatred, of love, of tranquility, calm, of pliability, malleability of mind, lightness of mind. So these are some of the beautiful states. When we recognize these factors as being present, we can nurture them knowing that we're cultivating wholesome states of mind in the moment and also bringing happy results in the future. So why is this contemplation of this fourth aggregate, mindfulness of sankharas, mindfulness of mental factors, why is it so important? Why did the Buddha give such emphasis to this? Whenever we are identified with any of these factors of mind, whether they're the neutral ethically neutral, the wholesome, the beautiful, whenever we are identified with any of them, we are reinforcing both the concept and the felt sense of self. It's this identification with the mental factors which creates the perspective of I'm thinking, I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm concentrated, I'm restless. We build a superstructure of self on top of what are actually momentary changing conditions. When we observe them more carefully, when we apply mindfulness to this aggregate of sankhara, of mental factors, we see that each one of them is simply arising out of particular conditions, expressing its nature, and passing away. So a more insightful perspective rather than I'm thinking or my happiness, my sadness, a more insightful perspective would be the thought is the thinker. The thought is thinking itself. It's love which loves, anger which angers, joy which joys, There's no I, there's no self in any of these. These factors are not self, they're not I, they're not mine, they don't belong to anyone. There's an image, which I like, which describes the selfless nature of the mental factors. It's an image of clouds in the sky. And the phrase is, the clouds that wander through the sky have no roots, no home. And so I just get this image of, you know, clouds with a root down to the ground. And it's such an absurd image. You know, clouds have no root. They're not not rooted any place. They simply wander through the sky... No roots, no home. Well, all of these thoughts and emotions and different mental factors are like clouds in the sky. They're not rooted in self. Ajahn Chah uh, expressed this in his usual very clear and straightforward way. He said, within itself, the mind is already peaceful. That the mind is not peaceful these days is because it follows moods. It becomes agitated because moods deceive it. Sense impressions come and trick it into unhappiness, suffering, gladness, and sorrow. But the mind's true nature is none of these things. Gladness or sadness is not the mind, but only a mood, a mental factor coming to deceive us the untrained mind gets lost and follows these things it forgets itself then we think that it is we who are upset or at ease or whatever but really this mind of ours is already unmoving and peaceful really peaceful so we must train the mind to know these sense impressions and not get lost in them Just this is the aim of all this difficult practice we put ourselves through. The more we contemplate or are mindful of this aggregate of mental factors, the aggregate of the sankharas and see how they arise out of conditions, the less we personalize them, the less we take them to be self, to be I. So what helps us contemplate these mental factors with insight and wisdom? How can we do it experientially in our practice? It's helpful to see what it is that conditions the arising of different emotions and mind states. Now, very often we can notice how a mood or an emotion is triggered by a certain thought. Now, maybe we have a thought of a person, and then we feel either delight or anger or longing the thought or image of the person may be very quick. It may be just a flashing thought in the mind. And yet the mood or the mind state can linger for quite a while. It's the thought which has conditioned that mood, that emotion. Sometimes it works the other way. Sometimes our moods or mind states condition a whole proliferation of thought. You know, maybe sometime when you're feeling tired or discouraged or a little grumpy. There's a certain mood that we're in. And that can trigger all kinds of critical thoughts, judgmental thoughts, judging others, judging ourselves. So all these thoughts, all these thoughts coming out of the particular mood that we're in. You can also see how thoughts and emotions and the whole array of mental factors are conditioned by our background and our level of understanding. One of the most uh, striking statements of the Buddha in terms of how we live our lives, he said, what the world does the Buddha... What the world calls happiness, I call suffering. And what the world calls suffering, I call happiness. So I find that pretty pretty, uh, illuminating remark in terms of what we think and feel depending on our level of understanding. You know, what makes one person unhappy could leave another person quite at ease. I had a striking example of this, just in in my own experience, the kind of the discordance of how I felt relative to how many others felt. This was about 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago. I was out in Oakland, and a friend took me to a Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen concert at the Oakland Coliseum. And you know, this was a big event. He was all excited about going. And it was, I don't know, 60,000, 70,000 people. We went into this concert. I thought I was entering a hell realm. It was so loud. The, the, the music was, it was painfully, excruciatingly painfully loud. I couldn't believe it. I mean I was not a frequenter of as you might imagine <laughs> of many rock concerts but I what was so striking was here I thought I was in this terrible realm and there were 70,000 people in some kind of bliss you know who were loving it so it just shows just depends on our own particular, you know, conditioning and what we understand and things we enjoy and don't enjoy. The more mindful we are of the conditioning factors of these different mental factors, you know, how they're conditioned in the mind either how thoughts condition emotions or emotions condition thoughts or our levels of understanding condition how we feel. When we can see that cause and effect relationship, it illuminates how impersonal it all is. These factors are not I, they're not self, they're not mine, they're arising out of conditions. They last for some short period of time, they pass away. So the power of this application of mindfulness, mindfulness of this aggregate of mental formations, is tremendously helpful in freeing us from the creation, the construct of I and self. So next week, I'd like to continue. There's more to say about Sankara. I'd like to continue next week with a little bit more about these mental formations, and then also consider the last of the five aggregates, uh, which is vijnana or consciousness. I'd just like to close with a poem by Pablo Neruda, and it has to do with at least. Some of the things talked about this evening. The name of the poem is Too Many Names. Mondays are meshed with Tuesdays, and the week with the whole year. Time cannot be cut with your exhausted scissors, and all the names of the day are washed out by the waters of night. No one can claim the name of Pedro, nobody is Rosa or Maria. All of us are dust or sand. All of us are rain under rain. They have spoken to me of Venezuelas, of Chiles, of Paraguays. I have no idea what they are saying. I know only the skin of the earth and I know it has no name. When I sleep every night, what am I called or not called? And when I wake, who am I if it was not I while I slept? Let us not fill our mouths with so many faltering names, with so many sad formalities, with so many pompous letters with so much of yours and mine, with so much signing of papers. I have a mind to confuse things, unite them, make them newborn, mix them up, undress them, until all light in the world has the oneness of the ocean, a generous, vast wholeness, a crackling living fragrance.